Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Over the last several weeks, we have been following Jesus. We have followed Jesus in his first year of ministry, public ministry called the year of inauguration, where he begins his ministry with his baptism in the Jordan, tempted in the desert, heads up north in Israel to Canaan, where his first miracle is turning water into wine at a wedding. We follow him in his years of popularity where people are are coming to him, throngs of people, great crowds of people are coming to, to hear what he has to say and, and, and see this man who can touch eyes and uh, blind eyes and they can see and touch limbs and they're restored and the lame can walk, the deaf can hear. Even, um, even those who are dead have been raised to life. People want to see who this man is. And we followed him in his year of opposition when he's still doing his miracle and he's still doing his teaching, but those religious leaders in Jerusalem are trying to figure out how to put him on the cross, and Jesus himself is going to voluntarily go there. And so the year of opposition is Jesus making his way up to Jerusalem to the cross. We've been following Jesus, and today on this Palm Sunday, we want to follow Jesus in his last week on earth. What was he going through? What were his thoughts? What, 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 what was he emphasizing his last week on earth? Every story we looked at is critical. Everything that Jesus did leaves an impression. But in his last week, these last impressions, it's kind of like he, he kind of capsulizes everything and just drives home these points of who he is and, and what he's really passionate about. Matthew chapter 21 tells us about that time when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, rode into Jerusalem. We call it triumphal entry. Jesus, uh, as he makes his last entry into Jerusalem, told his disciples to go uh, find uh, a donkey and uh, get the donkey and bring it to him. And when they did, they put their coats on the back of the donkey and uh, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of this animal. And it says that when people saw him, great crowds gathered. In chapter 22, verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd's answers, this is Jesus. He's a prophet. He is from Nazareth in Galilee. So think about that first Sunday as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the first day of his last week on earth. He is surrounded by people. They are singing praises to him. They are shouting Hosanna. Hosanna is a word in the Old Testament that means save, save us. In the New Testament, it had become, it become a word of, of praise and prayer. Not only save us, but praise you. And they're shouting Hosanna. Think about the crowds going ahead of him, the crowds alongside of him, the crowds behind him, and the whole city, it says, is stirred. Now, every time we read something in Scripture, whenever you're reading Scripture, you want to interact with Scripture. You don't want to be a passive listener to Scripture or a passive reader. And so you're asking questions regarding Scripture. And the first question we'd ask here is, why? Why did this crowd gather on that particular time Jesus entered Jerusalem? He had entered Jerusalem many times before. 
His headquarters was up there, remember, in Capernaum in the north part of Israel, but he had made many trips to Jerusalem. In fact, we looked at one time when he went to the Feast of the Tabernacles, he went, he entered the city incognito. They, no one knew he was there for about three and a half days. So why this time is there this big crowd? Well, you remember just a couple days before what had happened. Jesus stood before this, this tomb, dead man's tomb. And, and he told the people around to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. And even the dead man's sister said, I don't think that's a good idea, Jesus. He's been there for three days. The, the, the smell of death. We're going we're gonna to smell that. Jesus had him rolled away, you remember? He said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And there's a dead man, dead for three days, came from the grave, bound in grave cloths, and he came out alive. And you can imagine the news spread like wildfire. And on that first day of his last week, when he entered Jerusalem, that's why there was the triumphal entry, because everyone wanted to come and see this man who had power over death. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have been in that crowd? There were many in the crowd that day, and there were many tire kickers. There were many fickle followers. There were many who were singing Hosanna with the rest of them, but they were nowhere to be found at the end of the week. And there are many people like that today, right? Many people who like the events of Christianity. The Christmas Eve services. The Easter services. We call them Christers. Christmas, Easter only. I promise you I won't say that next week uh, when they're here. Our little secret, all right? <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Where is everyone the other 51 Sundays? Or the other 364 days, better. You see, we cannot be event Christians. We have to be those who are willing to celebrate with Jesus and walk with him every day of our lives. And here we see in this fickle crowd these great praises. They were singing praises just like we did today at all of our campuses. But it was walking with Jesus every day where the rubber hits the road, where the challenges come, that they were having problems. And by the end of the week, most of them were no, nowhere to be found. After the triumphal entry, Jesus went out to Bethany a town about two miles from Jerusalem, and he spent the night there. And when he came into Jerusalem the next day, on Monday morning, he headed straight to the temple. In that day, the temple was Jerusalem's place of worship. The last week of Jesus' life was the Passover. And so people were coming all over to worship at the temple. When you went to the temple to worship on the Passover, you needed to sacrifice an animal. And people were spread throughout all the Roman Empire, and it was a little difficult to 
to carry a goat or a sheep or, or, or herd them along, uh, some of the travels that people had. And so in the temple, you could go buy your sacrifice. And they were making some good money on it. Also, you had to pay a temple tax. You lived in the Roman Empire, and so you had Roman coins, but you could only pay the temple tax with Hebrew coins. So you needed some place to exchange your Roman coins for Hebrew coins, and it just happened that there was a great exchange table in the temple, and uh, there was a nice profit to exchange that. So in Jesus' day, the house of worship had been turned into a money-making scam. The religious leaders had concocted a way to make money from the desire to worship God. Imagine that. Anyone heard of the pastor in Dallas trying to raise $60 million for his private jet? I tried it here. It ain't working. <laughs> Doesn't work. So Jesus goes into the temple. And when we read this, listen to his passion. See his indignation for those who abuse pure worship. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling. Just see what's going on. Tables are being turned. Money's clinging all over the floor. Listen to the animals as they're being shooed out of the temple. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. On Monday, we see that Jesus, as we've seen throughout, is passionate about pure worship, and he still is. Today, we don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to do any sacrifices. Jesus, the lamb, has been slain. Our sacrifice has been given. And we are told in the New Testament that Jesus now, through the Holy Spirit, lives within us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16, as the church, the early church is making that move from worship in a one-place uh, temple to the worship that we need to have with God all the time, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are what? You yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Wherever you go, you are the temple. Wherever you go, you are representing God. Wherever you go, there is or should be pure worship. When we invite Christ into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, he lives within us. He makes our heart the center of our thinking and, 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 our, and our emotions and our will. He makes our heart his home, and he is just as passionate that we keep it clean. So let me ask you this. As Jesus walks through your heart, what tables does he see? that he so desires to overturn. Tables of impurity. For some of you, he wants to take that computer and smash it to the ground where you're viewing pornography. Tables of dishonesty. Tables of deceit. Tables of materialism where we believe it's all ours and everything we have is ours because we worked really hard for it and we deserve everything we can buy and we want something bigger and better always instead of understanding that it's a gift to be used. Tables of pride, tables of compromise, tables where we're tolerating sin in our life, tables of unwholesome speech, 
tables of gossip. Man, when I look at my heart, I got to remember Jesus is just as repulsed and indignant about the tables that I've set up in my heart as he was that day on Monday of his last week when he walked into the temple and he overturned those tables there. So are we going to be willing to surrender those tables to him? That's the question for that Monday of his last week. As you can imagine, when he turned over those tables in the temple, the religious leaders did not really appreciate that. They had always been trying to kill him. They'd been plotting his death for about a year in this year of opposition. But it's always nice to have a good reason to kill someone, right? And uh, they're trying to nail Jesus down, and they're trying to make him contradict himself. They're trying to catch him out. And so they send, they send three groups of people to um, try to try to catch Jesus in a contradiction, try to catch him in a compromise. The first group are, is a group called the Herodians. Uh, among the Jews, there were those who actually said, hey, we like the Roman rule. This is pretty good. We like it. And they were called the Herodians. And so they send the Herodians, and the Herodians say, Jesus, got a question for you. Uh, is it right to pay taxes or not? Now, the religious leaders thought we got him here because if he says, yeah, it's fine to pay taxes, the Jews are going to turn on him because they didn't want to pay the taxes. If he says it's not good to pay taxes, then we can sick Rome on him because it's the law that we pay taxes. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22, look at verse 18, knowing their evil intent, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used for paying tax. And he, they brought him a Daenerys and he said, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And, and then he said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and God what is God's. It's that simple. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left and went away. So that's strike one. Another group comes that same day on Tuesday, Another group, the Sadducees come. They are, were those who did not believe in life after death. And so they constructed a hypothetical question about marriage in heaven to try to get Jesus to stumble on this issue of life after death so the other, those who believed in eternal life would, would, would turn on him. Look at verse uh, 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, here, here's the hypothetical situation. There were seven brothers among us. Uh, the first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third right brother, right on down to the seventh, and finally the woman died. I mean, no wonder uh, after that. And then verse 28, and then at the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be since she married them all? Great question. Well, Jesus answers, verse 29, you and, you're in error because you don't even know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry or be given in marriage, but they'll be like the angels of heaven. But about the resurrection that you don't believe in, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And check this out, when the crowds heard this, they didn't turn on Jesus. They were astonished at his teaching. 
There was a third group who came, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who believed in a strict adherence to the law of Moses. Teenagers, if you think your parents were tough, man, you should have had a Pharisee for a parent. They took the law of Moses and they added 248 commands, 365 prohibitions. I'm pretty sure that unlimited texting plan and Instagram and Snapchat were not involved in any of those allowances in the home. These hyper-legalists came and they asked a question. They said, Jesus, we have all these laws. I mean, they're in the Old Testament. So which is the greatest commandment in the law? Certainly they thought one man's opinion over another would result in a lot of debate. Here's what Jesus says in verse 37 of chapter 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Check this out. Look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus says vertically, love God with all you've got. Love others like yourself, and then everything else falls into line, and the Pharisees walked away. Following that series of questions, Jesus took his turn. And in his most pointed and piercing response to any person or group, seven times over, he calls these religious leaders hypocrites, a Greek word from the theater, play actors, pretenders, imposters. You are just pretending. You are pretending to be a Christian. You're pretending to love God. You're pretending to follow him. You are not. He called them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of dead man's bones on the inside. On Tuesday, Jesus drives home the point that he's been driving home all along. He is intolerant of hypocrites. He is intolerant of play actors. He is intolerant of people who play, act to be a Christian. It's amazing, isn't it? As we follow Jesus, thieves and murderers, he forgives. Adulterers come and he forgives them. Prostitutes come, he forgives them. He meets the woman at the well. He, he forgives Zacchaeus, this chief tax collector. But I'm telling you, through scripture, he, he does not tolerate hypocrites. He will not put up, the, put up with the proud and, and, and pompous pretenders. You know Why? Because a sinner's a sinner. They're walking another direction. But a pretender says they're a believer. They come and sing the songs. They do the Bible studies. They do the church thing. And then on Monday mornings in business, they are just as much a cutthroat as the pagan next door. Their language is just has as many sexual innuendos as the guy who was at the golf course on Sunday morning. They're the same student at school with their language and their actions as the kid who slept all day Sunday. See, Jesus says, if you're going to walk with me, back it up with your actions. And if you're not going to back it up with your actions, do me a favor. Don't tell anyone you're a Christian. Because a hypocrite does more damage, 
more damage to the name of Jesus Christ than all the sinners put together. And you look at Scripture, and if there's one thing that Jesus did not put up with, it's hypocrites. If you are here, and you're here, that's a profound statement, you are here, and you claim to be a believer, but your life is not matching up, stop playing the games. Will you do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But if you're pretending, Jesus says, for heaven's sake, stop playing. You're doing damage to the name of Christ. He is intolerant with hypocrites. On Wednesday, Jesus told his disciples he was going to be crucified. He's told them that many times. Now it's just a couple days away. The religious leaders on that day, on Wednesday, made their plans to, to kill him. And it was on Wednesday that Judas went to the high priest and bargained for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. But there's one event that takes place that day that, that really describes, in a, in a beautiful way, this preparation. Um, chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 6, 26-6. While Jesus was in Bethany, he keeps going back and forth to Bethany during that last week. While he was in Bethany in the home of a man named Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. We don't know exactly how much it cost. Most people say it was about it was a year's wage. So whatever you make a year, just plug that number in. She poured the expensive perfume on Jesus's head as he was reclining at the table. So it seems like it was just spontaneous. He's at the table, he's eating, he's reclining. So he's on his arm eating with his right hand. And, and she just comes up and she pours it, spontaneous worship on, on his head. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why, why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for what? For burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And this story is in all four gospels. Jesus said, this is such a tremendous act of worship extravagant worship. When's the last time you can say, I did something extravagant for Jesus Christ? Above and beyond. Something really extravagant. Jesus said, man, what she did is so spontaneous, so extravagant. Wherever the gospel is shared, I want her story right there. I want people to see what it looks like to, to, to truly worship me in, in an extravagant way. On Wednesday night, when Jesus lay down on his bed, he alone knew that it would be the last time he slept before closing his eyes in the painful death of the cross. But just think of it. Think of God's grace in that beautiful act of worship, as Jesus is closing his eyes, what does he smell? 
He smells the fragrance of that perfume, and he has to smile. That here was a woman who loved him so much that she sacrificially gave to show her love and to honor him alone. And that was the woman he was going to go die for on the cross. And that had to be an encouragement, don't you think? That was an encouragement to him as he smelled that perfume. On Wednesday, Jesus prepared for his death. And as he was doing that, he had this beautiful smell of perfume that had been given out in extravagant worship. Thursday was Jesus' last day with his disciples. On that day, he asked his disciples to always remember him with this Passover meal they were about to take. And during that Passover meal in the upper room of a person's home, he took the bread and he said, this bread is going to represent a new covenant, a new way of thinking, a new way to have a relationship with God. It's going to be through me. And this bread is going to represent my body that hung on the cross. And this cup is going to represent my blood that was poured out. When blood is poured out, it's a symbol of death. I'm going to die on the cross. And I always want you to use this bread and the cup to remember me. And they had a great uh, time together. You can read the other gospels to check out the interaction uh, that they had. And then after supper, Jesus went out in a garden. Remember the story? And he took all the disciples in the garden, but then he took three, James, Peter, James, and John, and he went a little further in and he began to pray. And he prayed three times over, three periods of intense prayer. His praying was so intense and he was under such stress that great drops of blood came out of his pores. Doctors tell us that under, under significant stress, the blood can come out of the pores. And Jesus prayed three times over, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, let's do that. If there is any other way, I don't want to go to the cross. I'm willing to do it if it's your will. But if there is any other way, think of the dread that was in Christ's heart. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the pain he would go through. But he knew, and we'll see in a minute, much more than that. In the middle of the garden, in the middle of the night, with 30 silver coins jingling in his pocket, Judas came, gave him a kiss, and 300 Roman soldiers gathered around Jesus and took him away to the trials. And at that moment, all the disciples ran every one of them. Peter said, I'll never run from you. I'll die with you. He ran as fast as the rest of them. We can't be too hard on Peter or those disciples, can we? Because without the presence of 300 Roman soldiers and torches and the threat of death, I have forgotten and run from Jesus as well. Have you ever had the opportunity to share the message of Christ and just kind of backed off because, you know, I don't want to be rejected. Ever run to your own hiding places 
of rebellion and disobedience? Have you ever run from Jesus? Don't be too hard on the disciples. We've all had our times of escape. You remember the crowd that was shouting praises on Sunday morning? Well, Thursday, Jesus went to the cross alone. As we've been looking at the life of Jesus, so many contrasts, aren't there? And Sunday, we see this triumphal entry, this crowd going before him and behind him and beside him. And they're yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But not on Friday. Jesus does this work all by himself. During that Friday, the high priests in the Jewish Supreme Court tried our Lord. Jesus was slapped in the face as a sign of scorn. He was beaten with the fists of soldiers. Others spit in his face. He was dressed as a king and mocked. He was beaten over the head with a rod, a crown of long thorns was pushed into his head. He, he went through the sometimes fatal ordeal of being flogged, bone chips or pieces of glass or metal on the end of long strips, several of those long strips, and he took those lashes. His back would have been laid wide open. And then he went to the awful ordeal of the cross. He would have been laid on his back with the crossbar that he had carried through the city as a common criminal. His wrist would have been wrapped at first, but now big nails, spikes thrust through his wrist. Doctors say that the burning sensation that would have caused would have been unbearable. After that, that crossbar was put on a cross, and then that cross was brought up and dropped into a hole where those on the cross, Jesus' shoulders would have separated. And then in order to stay alive for any duration, he would have had to push himself up on the cross, his feet nailed there as well, just to be able to get a breath. And then when fatigue take, took over, back down, sometimes people stayed on the cross for three or four days. It was such a terrible punishment, such a terrible execution. There was not a word to describe the pain, and so they invented a word. The word means out of the cross, our word excruciate, and that death was excruciating, and that wasn't even the whole of it. That Friday, as Jesus hung on the cross, bloodied and beaten beyond recognition, not as the artist renditions. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was bloody. He was hanging naked in a sign of abject humiliation. There he took on his most holy and his most high work. There on the cross, sin's penalty was paid for once and for all. He became the Lamb of God. He became the sacrifice. And in, in a moment that we could not, we can't even begin to understand, Jesus took on himself every sin from Adam and Eve's back in Genesis, 
to every sin that will be committed before he comes again, including every sin you've committed and every sin I've committed and will ever commit. He took on every sin in his body. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And in this moment that we can't even imagine the Trinity, the Godhead, somehow God the Father poured his wrath. The wages of sin is death. He poured his wrath on Jesus for all the sins that he bore in his body. And finally, Jesus, and again, we can't even comprehend this. He turns to the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have even you forsaken me? In essence, Jesus is saying, how long will this go on? I don't know how much longer I can handle this as a wrath is being poured. How much longer will this go on? And then he cries out in a loud voice, those three words in English, that one word in Greek, what? It is finished. Often we think of that as, a, as, a, as, as words of surrender or defeat, not at all. Those are words of victory. That comes from the Greek word tetelestai. It means paid in full. If you had a debt and you brought the money to pay it, they would stamp it, tetelestai paid in full. Jesus was saying, the mission I came to do, I came to seek and save those who are lost. I came to be the Lamb of God. I came to die for the sins of the world. The mission is accomplished. On Friday, the mission was accomplished. Now, next week, we're going to celebrate the resurrection, something we need to celebrate every, every day of our life. But for now, let's just linger a little bit at the cross. You see Jesus there, completely surrendered, completely humiliated. Do you see your sin there? Because he is bearing your sin and mine in his body on the cross. Every pain he suffered was for us. The agony, just for us. Every, every, every ounce of joy, every pound of victory, every note of celebration for the believer purchased painfully by the death of Christ on the cross. Over the last weeks, we followed Jesus all the way to the cross, and our purpose has been very straightforward when we started. We didn't do this to gain more information about Jesus so that we could win Bible trivia. We did this for three reasons, so that we could know Jesus intimately. What are you going to do to know Jesus more intimately? You can't keep doing the things you're doing to know him more intimately. You've got to crank it up. What are we going to do to know him more intimately? To love Jesus passionately. Love is an action word. Love is not something hypocrites do. Hypocrites talk about stuff and never get it done. Love says, I love you so much, I will get it done. What decisions will you make to love Jesus passionately? To follow Jesus wholeheartedly. There are many half-hearted Christians. 
There are many people who love to follow Jesus when it works for them and not when it doesn't. There are many who like to hold on to their sins, those tables that he wants to overturn and keep them in special places in our hearts. But what are you going to do to turn it all over to him? What are you going to do to surrender? As he surrendered for us on the cross and held nothing back, wholehearted sacrifice, what are we going to do to follow him wholeheartedly? And today is a time of action. If there was ever a day when people needed to see what a true, full-out follower of Jesus who knew him intimately, who loved him passionately, who followed him heartily, if there was ever a day that needs to be seen, it is today. And it doesn't start with other people. It starts right here with us. It starts right here in our hearts. It has to be right here in our homes. It has to be right here in this community of believers. And then we have the privilege of showing a world what it truly looks like to follow Jesus Christ. What are you going to do to make sure you are that person? I'm going to ask our pastoral staff and elders to come up at this time. Kirk is going to come out and lead us in a, a hymn of invitation. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. And maybe today he is asking you to come home. Maybe he's asking you to come to himself for the very first time. Today, you're going to trust in him. He died for your sins on the cross, and you want to trust in him alone. Maybe, maybe let's be honest, you've been a hypocrite. You've been, you've been talking the game at church, and you've been playing another game in your life. Jesus is intolerant of that. Today's the day you say, I'm done with that stuff. It's going to be wholeheartedness. I'm not going to be perfect, but by God's grace and his power, I'm going to live a life that pleases him. Maybe you got some stuff in your marriage you need to pray about. You need to, you need to work through. I, I don't know what your situation is. God does, and you do. And you know if he's working in your heart. And we're here to pray with you if that's the case. So let's stand. And uh, pastoral staff and elders, come on down. And Kirk's going to lead us in this song. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. And he says, come home, come home. are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is Mercies for you and for me. Come home, come home. 
calling, oh sinner, come mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home, come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. So we're here as you leave, and we would love the opportunity to pray with you whatever is going on in your life, whatever you'd like someone to pray for you and with you. We're going to ask you to do something today a little different. If you just leave the worship center quietly, as those who come down want to pray and there's plenty of time to talk out in the lobby uh, but we want to we want to have some time in here that's uh, allows us to pray with those uh, who will come down father thank you for our time today lord you call us to yourself and you call us by grace and you continually call us closer to you to more intimacy to more passion, to, to, to wholeheartedness. You show us things in our life that we're blind to if we're willing to, to pray that prayer. There are tables you want to turn over because you want us to, to be in fellowship with you, the the best place to be, the most joyful place to be, the most celebratory place to be, the place of peace. And so, Father, if anyone here needs to come home, I pray today is the day they do that. As we leave, help us to demonstrate in our homes, in our community, at work, at school. Help us to demonstrate that we are a full-out, full-orb follower of Jesus Christ. Help us, help us not be the person who gets the message mixed up of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. Help us to be those who let our light shine in such a way that people will see what we do and that will bring glory to you. Be with us as we go in Christ's name. Amen.